I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. There are hundreds of rare diseases that don't have effective treatments, but developing new drugs takes time and money. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Many patients with hard-to-treat conditions can't afford to wait years for new medicines. Is there a way to find out if existing drugs could be helpful? Repurposing old drugs could save lives, but only if we learn how to use them effectively. Our guest today is working urgently on figuring out which currently approved drugs might be useful for something completely different. How can we find out about the pros and cons of such off-label use? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, teaching old drugs new tricks. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the U.S. mortality data on death rates during 2021 have just been finalized, and the results are disappointing. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, life expectancy for U.S. citizens in 2021 was 76.4 years. That's the lowest it's been since 1996. The leading causes of death were heart disease, cancer, and COVID-19. In 2021, 3,464,231 people died in the United States. That was 80,502 more deaths than in 2020. COVID-19 was responsible for that increased mortality. In 2020, it was determined that 350,831 people died from the coronavirus. That jumped 18.8% to 416,893 in 2021. To put life expectancy into context, men in the U.S. dropped from 74.2 years in 2020 to 73.5 in 2021. Women dropped from 79.9 years in 2020 to 79.3 in 2021. In Japan, however, the average life expectancy was 81.5 years for men in 2021 and 87.6 years for women. The life expectancy declines due to COVID were much smaller in Japan than in the U.S. NIH researchers have just reported on a relationship between viral infections and neurodegenerative diseases. They analyzed data from over 300,000 people in a Finnish biobank and almost 500,000 people in the UK biobank. These were individuals who had been diagnosed with a variety of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease, generalized dementia, vascular dementia, ALS, Parkinson's disease, and multiple sclerosis. Investigators compared these people to individuals who did not have any such neurological diseases. Exposure to viral diseases was associated with an increased risk of neurodegeneration. Viral encephalitis was closely linked to Alzheimer's disease. When patients had influenza with pneumonia, they were more likely to develop five of the six neurodegenerative diseases studied. 
shingles caused by the varicella zoster herpes virus, and intestinal viral infections were also associated with brain disorders. The authors point out that this can be a delayed process. Some of these exposures were associated with an increased risk of neurodegeneration up to 15 years after infection. What can you do in daily life to help keep your brain in shape? A study of nearly 4,500 people in the U.K. shows that even brief bursts of vigorous activity most days are linked to better brain power. The middle-aged volunteers wore activity monitors on their thighs for a week. Then they completed a number of tests designed to measure short-term memory and problem-solving skills. Activities like swimming, aerobic dancing, running, or biking uphill boost heart rate. People who did them just six to nine minutes daily on average scored better on the cognitive tests. Older people are especially vulnerable to adverse drug reactions. That's the conclusion of a long-running study of 15 general practices in Ireland. The investigators collected data over six years on 592 individuals who are at least 70 years of age. During that time, over one-fourth of these volunteers experienced complications from their medicine. While most were mild, a considerable portion of moderate adverse reactions led to additional doctor visits or hospitalizations. Anxiety that seeps into everyday activities is both common and distressing. When patients seek relief, doctors often prescribe anti-anxiety medications. A randomized trial of over 200 people compared mindfulness-based stress reduction to the medication escitalopram, also known as Lexapro. The volunteers took the medication or attended mindfulness training sessions and practiced at home for eight weeks. By the end of that time, people in both groups were measurably less anxious. Mindfulness works as well against anxiety disorder as medication without the complications. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Drug development can be extremely time-consuming and very expensive. Repurposing existing medications that have already been approved by the FDA might offer a faster and more economical way to manage many conditions that don't currently have good treatments. To help us understand how to teach old drugs new tricks, we turn to Dr. David Fagenbaum. He's Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director for Patient Impact of the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He's Founding Director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory. Dr. Fagenbaum is also co-founder of the nonprofit Every Cure and author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. David Fagenbaum. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Fagenbaum, some of our listeners have heard your remarkable story, but not all of them are aware of what happened to you in medical school. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to bring all of us up to speed on that. Sure. Thanks so much again, Terry. 
So I was a healthy third-year medical student back in 2010. I wanted to become a cancer doctor in memory of my mom, who had died just a few years before from cancer. And I was making progress towards this dream of one day helping patients in her memory, one day searching for cures uh, for diseases in her memory, when out of nowhere I became critically ill. And and by by that, what I mean is I started feeling more tired than I'd ever felt. I noticed lumps and bumps appearing in my neck. And and I started noticing fluid pooling around my ankles. And I I was formerly really, really healthy. I was actually a college quarterback and and really was healthy leading up to this. I just just didn't know what was going on. So I went from one of my medical school exams down the hall to the emergency department and they ran some blood work. And the doctor, I'll never forget when he walked in the room, he said, David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are all shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And within just a matter of days, I was in the intensive care unit uh, on dialysis, receiving daily transfusions, drifting in and out of consciousness. And about 11 weeks into this, I was so sick that my doctors told my family I wouldn't survive. And a priest came into my room and read me my last rites. I was 25 years old. So unfortunately, I became more and more and more sick. But thankfully, the diagnosis was finally made. I was diagnosed with a rare disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, where basically the immune system attacks and shuts down all of your vital organs for an unknown cause. And so with the diagnosis, thankfully, was able to come some treatment. And I I received a combination of multiple chemotherapies, these horrible chemos. Uh, And thankfully, um, they they started to put my disease into remission. But unfortunately, the disease would continue to come back. Now, Dr. Fakenbaum, you have downplayed your role in the diagnosis. Well, that's still that's still ahead. Yeah. I mean, but you you were you were not a passive patient. Fortunately, you you got you got involved. You rolled up your sleeves. You said, what is going on? And then eventually you were able with a colleague to figure out what was at the heart of your problem. I was certainly involved in it, but I will say that I was so sick at, at my, my worst points that I could barely even think straight. I was in, in, you know, in and out of consciousness, but you're right. Anytime that I did have consciousness, I was asking, um, you know, well, what about this test? What about this disease? But I, I think it would be an overstatement to say that I, I contributed all that much. I, I tried really hard, but, um, but certainly was very fortunate that the diagnosis was finally made really just in time. I mean, if it had taken more than 11 weeks, I, I wouldn't have survived. It was, you know, if it was 11 weeks in one day, I likely would not be here talking to you. But thankfully, um, that diagnosis finally came in when a lymph node biopsy was done. You're right. So it was when, when I had encouraged my doctor to, to do a lymph node biopsy. That is what eventually led to the diagnosis. And you say that initially the treatment that they used worked and then it started to fail. What happened then? That's right. So it worked for about four weeks, which was enough to save my life and to get me out of the hospital. And the next thing that we did was to try to understand who's the world's expert for idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. I mean, I was a med student and I had never heard of it before. And so um, we found out that the world's expert was in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he happens to be one of the best multiple myeloma doctors in the world. And Castleman disease, though it's not yet 
able to be classified as to whether it's a cancer or an autoimmune disease. It kind of has the, the worst features of both. It's generally treated by oncologists. And this particular oncologist in Little Rock, Arkansas, was the person to go see. So my dad and I, um, we, we got on a plane and flew out to Little Rock, Arkansas and, um, and, you know, hoped that we would start getting some answers when we were there. And thankfully we were able to see this, this brilliant doctor and he started coming up with a plan for us. Um, and, and that plan, um, you know, involved an experimental drug, a drug called sultuximab that we had hoped would keep my disease in remission. And maybe I could get my life back. I mean, Castleman's is a deadly condition, but if you can get it into remission and keep it there, um, you know, you can have, um, some, some, some time of, of good health. And unfortunately, while I was out in Little Rock to visit the expert, I started to have another relapse despite the chemotherapy. And I got really, really sick again. I mean, I was in the ICU again with everything shutting down. What I didn't share earlier is that during these horrible episodes, I gain about 70 pounds of fluid with them. And it's because my liver and my kidneys stop working. And there's this horrible, just constant unbearable pain that comes with gaining that kind of fluid, um, particularly around your vital organs. Um, but but my, my doctor gave me a combination of seven chemotherapies, um, some of the worst chemotherapies you know known to man. But thankfully, um, they started to work. And I mean, just to tell you how sick I was, I actually felt better with every dose of like the worst, most toxic chemotherapy out there because it was finally destroying my immune system, which was really destroying me. And it, and it got me into a remission. Just out of curiosity, who, who is that physician in Little Rock? His name is Fritz Van Rie, and he is just uh, one of the most amazing doctors and, and people that I know. We had the experience of uh, actually spending some time at that Little Rock facility, University of Arkansas Medical Center, because my best friend, Dr. Tom Ferguson, was treated for multiple myeloma there, again, with cutting-edge, state-of-the-art medications that extended his life many, many years past what was expected. So, yes, we are very familiar with the amazing scientists and researchers there. Well, let's it's such a special place. And for absolutely. multiple myeloma, it is the place to go to in the world. Absolutely. And uh, and we admire them and you for having found the right place. So what is the drug that has changed your life? And how did you come upon it? Sure. So, um, you know, as I shared, I got on this experimental drug. It didn't work for me. Um, I got chemotherapy. Um, it, it worked for a short period of time, but unfortunately, I went on to have multiple relapses. And when I, I nearly died for the fourth time, that's when I decided to dedicate my life to trying to find a treatment for patients like me. And I knew I only had a matter of months before I would be back in the ICU. And I, and I didn't know how many more of these I could survive, frankly. Um, so I created an organization called the Castle Disease Collaborative Network to bring together colleagues from around the world to search for treatments. Um, and then I started conducting research in the lab, but I knew that I couldn't develop a new drug from scratch. I didn't have a billion dollars in 10 years to, to come up with a new drug. I knew my only chance of survival would be to figure out what was happening in my immune system and then figure out what drugs were already FDA approved and were at my pharmacy that could maybe fix the problem. And I knew there was no guarantee that there would be a drug. This is you know, called repurposing. I knew there was no guarantee there could be 
there would be a repurposed drug, but I knew it was my only chance of survival. So um, I did a series of, of experiments on my blood and, and also on my lymph node tissue. And I eventually identified that a key aspect of the immune system called the mTOR pathway, which I know you guys have spoken about on previous episodes, mTOR was turned into overdrive in my immune system. And when I made this discovery in the lab, I was so excited about it because there are drugs that have been around for decades that are really good at turning mTOR off, this particular immune communication line. And so um, I shared the data with my, my doctors, Dr. Van Rie and Little Rock and others. And since there really were no other options and I was almost certainly going to die in the near term, um, we decided to start testing this drug on me. And it had never been used before for my disease. But like I said, I had this early sense that it might work. And you're not going to believe this, Joe and Terry, but um, this it's been over eight and a half years. And January 5th will mark nine years that I've been in remission on this drug after nearly dying five times in the first three years. Oh, that is actually just marvelous. Really marvelous. So tell us the name of this quote unquote old drug and why it's working so well. Sure. It's called serolimus, another name for it's rapamycin. And I know you, you all have, have spoken about rapamycin in the past. So this drug was discovered um, about 40 years ago and initially utilized for um, organ transplant rejection. It's uh, So just like in me where my immune system attacks my organs, if you were to get an organ transplant, your immune system would attack that new organ unless you took a transplant rejection drug which basically weakens your immune system. And it does it by blocking this one part of the immune system called mTOR. And so it was made for kidney transplant rejection. Um, and it, and like I said, it had never been used before for Castleman's. But here I am um, years and years later, and we've gone on to discover that this part of my immune system, mTOR, that was turned on is also turned on uniformly across Castleman's patients. We find it up uh, inappropriately elevated across patients which has made us really excited um, because in, in medicine and drug development, you know, when you can find that something is turned on and you find out that in a particular patient, if you turn it off, um, it improves that patient's outcomes, then you, know, you get really excited that maybe it's going to help a lot of other people. We've subsequently found out that it has been able to help many, many patients with Castleman's, but unfortunately, it is not uniformly effective. You're listening to Dr. David Fagenbaum, founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fagenbaum is the co-founder of the nonprofit Every Cure and author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. After the break, we'll talk more about repurposing old drugs. This was attempted during COVID-19. How well did it work? Could a century-old vaccination called BCG help protect against covid how could we create a system to study the best ways of repurposing old drugs? We'll need to figure out how to break down the research silos. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's 
G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. COVID-19 has had researchers scrambling to come up with effective treatments. One initiative was to try existing drugs to see how well they'd work. There were some interesting discoveries and some disappointments. Can we adapt this kind of initiative for other hard-to-treat conditions? We're talking with Dr. David Fagenbaum, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's Founding Director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory. Dr. Fagenbaum is also co-founder of the nonprofit Every Cure and author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Dr. Fagenbaum, you've just shared with us your amazing story about how serolimus, a drug for preventing organ transplant rejection, also has worked for you with Castleman disease and, and some other patients, although not everyone. And, and this is what we have rephrased, teaching old drugs new tricks. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of repurposing medications. And this is such an exciting idea. I mean, we are just so excited about this concept because, number one, these drugs are on the market. They're available. Yes. So availability in many cases, affordability yes. because they've lost their patent and because there are generic manufacturers. And number three, safety. We've had not just a few years, but in some cases, like in your case, decades of experience with such medications. And so it's like, wow, this is, this is like a, a whole new birthday present, you know, totally unexpected, but working fabulously. But then there's the problem. Because nothing has stimulated more interest in repurposing old drugs than COVID-19. And I think that that was like turbocharging this Mm -hmm. idea of teaching old drugs new tricks. And first it was hydroxychloroquine, and then it was ivermectin, and then it was azithromycin. And then we heard about fluvoxamine, which is related to a drug like Prozac. And there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and not very much research. And then there was some research and people said, oh, this is great. Ivermectin, it's the cure, it's the solution. But it didn't turn out to be. So help us understand what happened with COVID-19 and repurposing old drugs. Sure. You can imagine that when COVID emerged, that in the same way that I had this urgency to find a drug to save my life before it was too late, we all had the same urgency with COVID. We needed to find drugs right away. And just as I said, I didn't have a decade and a billion dollars. None of us had had the time that we expected it would take for new drug development. So we all started looking into potential repurposing opportunities. And you're, you are spot on with what the, you know, the 
exciting um, progress has been the reasons that to, to be excited about this for COVID, but also the challenges. And so I, I think that in the COVID space, the two drugs that have saved by far the most lives of any drug during the pandemic are two drugs that have gotten relatively little attention. The first is dexamethasone, which of course has been around for decades and reduces mortality by 30% in hospitalized patients with COVID. And the other is tocilizumab, which reduces mortality by 15% on top of the 30 from dexamethasone. And that was a drug that was actually made for Castleman disease um, back in the 90s and is now used in the U.S. for other diseases. But so those drugs combined, which were discovered within the first six months of the pandemic, are able to reduce mortality from hospitalized patients by almost 50%. And, that, um, and just as that, an aside, that's huge. That, that's it's huge. <laughs> that, that's like, wow, why aren't we jumping up and down and excited? Because dexamethasone, we've had so much experience with dexamethasone. It's a corticosteroid. It's inexpensive. We know what the side effect profile is, and we sort of have an idea of why it might be working yes. for COVID. And yet it never made headlines. It's incredible. You know, it costs $10 for a 10-day course and reduces your risk of death by over 30%. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. For some reason, um, the public uh, and also scientists and physicians as well got so much into the debate about drugs that are maybe helpful, maybe not helpful, sort of on the fence, when in the meantime, these two drugs were just busy saving millions of lives, right? Um, and I, I'm not sure exactly why that was. Uh, but but yes, uh, dexamethasone and tocilizumab have have just saved million, millions of lives, and they they were not made for COVID. They were made decades ago for other diseases. So um, when you think about it from that perspective, you would say, "Oh my gosh, repurposing has been such a success." Um, but then when you think about it from the perspective of, for whatever reason, the debate around the U.S. was actually around drugs that maybe there's a signal for. Maybe there's a signal not for them, probably not effective, but if they are effective, um, extraordinarily less effective than other drugs. So um, it, it's really unfortunate, but I do think that that's um, uh, made repurpose, it's put repurposing in a, in a more difficult light than it should be in. Dr. Fagenbaum, there is a drug that might be helping against COVID, but it hasn't actually attracted any attention to speak of in the U.S. because it isn't widely used here, although it's a very old drug. I think it's 100 years old. And that is something that is frequently used as a, a sort of an immunization for babies mm. in many parts of the world where tuberculosis is common. It's yes. called BCG. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There's a lot of really compelling data around BCG vaccine as actually being able to to be a very good uh, preventive agent from for COVID. And if you do get COVID, then have a much more mild uh, version of COVID. Um, I think the reason that it hasn't been taken up, it's a few reasons. One is that unlike dexamethasone, which is readily prescribable in your, you know, at any hospital or pharmacy in the world, BCG vaccine is not readily available, you know, sitting right there in your pharmacy to be utilized. Um, and then, so, so that's one part. It's not right on the shelf and easy to utilize. And then um, the second is that, um, you know, here in the U.S., uh, we have um, developed novel vaccines using RNA technology that is felt to be more specific than we've ever been before in terms of being able to basically print, 3D print the, the nucleic acid sequence of, of a, 
of a portion of a virus. And so it's highly specific. And what you describe with BCG is less of a specific um, approach and more of a of a, a broad approach. And that's what when you use the BCG vaccine to vaccinate someone, you you broadly turn on the immune system. You basically get it ready to take things on. Um, so it's just a very different approach. And you're right, it really has not gotten much attention at all here in the U.S. Well, what fascinates us about BCG, and you probably can pronounce the French better than I can, um, <laughs> Bacillus... Bacillus... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a French terminology, but but basically it was Because the guys who discovered it were, were French. French. And it was nice. for tuberculosis prevention. But uh, it was the first immunotherapy compound used against cancer. I mean, it, it was used. We actually had a dear friend who had melanoma, advanced melanoma, and she received BCG injections, what, wow. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, in 1975. And uh, it basically it saved her life from melanoma. Oh Nowadays, people who develop bladder cancer are routinely given BCG to treat bladder cancer. And I think there's a lot more excitement about BCG for these these novel uses. Th- not... These are off-label uses for BCG, I think. Well, I think now for bladder cancer, it may be approved by the FDA. But, but the bottom line is, here is this really, really old drug mm-hmm. that's being rediscovered against cancer and maybe even against COVID. And yet it... it... It, it points up one of the great weaknesses that we have, not just in this country, but around the world. And that is, how do we create a system that will allow for studying and repurposing old drugs for new uses? Well, you've uh, brought, brought up the exact question that I've been thinking about a lot ever since I discovered serolimus could be useful for me. And over the last almost nine years, sort of digging into yeah, why isn't there a system to figure these things out? Why did I have to be a medical student and find this drug? Why isn't there a system that's responsible for this? And and, and I've learned that there's really three barriers that prevent drugs uh, and approaches like BCG from being um, utilized for all the diseases they can treat. So, so one of them is that there's no central data repository of all drugs and all the diseases that they may be able to treat. That information is spread out across dozens of different places from PubMed to clinicaltrials.gov through knowledge graphs. They're, they're really spread out um, in a lot of places, which makes it really hard to find any one of them. Um, second, there is uh, an insufficient business model. So I think the, probably one of the main reasons that BCG also has not the uptake that, that you've described in new areas is that it's old and therefore uh, it's difficult to make a profit off of. And I'm not saying that that is a good reason that this doesn't happen, but I'm saying it is a reason that this doesn't happen. So for drugs that are generic and old, it typically would cost far more to do a clinical trial of that approach than that company that makes it, usually multiple generic manufacturers, could expect to make back um, from this new disease indication, particularly if it's a rare disease. Now, of course, COVID is common enough that um, that there that it actually may be common enough that um, it could actually be profitable. But there really isn't a business case for the vast majority of generic drugs and rare diseases. And then third. Something that's really sort of been surprising for me is that there's no organization responsible for figuring out 
all uses for approved medicines. So we often think that the NIH or the FDA would would maybe be out there. I mean, when I was growing up, I had the sense that they must be looking into things. And I could envision this like uh, group of, of, of collaborators working together. In, in my book, I, I call it the Santa Claus theory of civilization. I believe that there was a group of almost like you could imagine Santa's uh, workers trying to figure out solutions to medical problems and, uh, you know, deliver that solution to you just in time. But what I've subsequently learned is actually, particularly when it comes to matching drugs and diseases, there is no entity responsible for that, which is why we launched an organization this fall called Every Cure to take on that responsibility. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I think that um, the fact that there's no central data repository is a really important barrier, but it's a problem that could be solved if we really wanted to do it. The um, uh, it, Under the current way that our medical system is set up, the fact that there's no good financial incentive for companies to do the research is a, a much bigger barrier, mm-hmm. I think. But But this idea that there is no organization that actually is looking at how drugs are used, uh, tell us more about that, please. Sure. So um, you're exactly right. It is a huge intractable problem, but it is something that I think all of us um, believe is something that we should address. I, I mean, we, we call the organization Every Cure because we believe that no patient should be told that we've tried everything when there is a life-saving cure at the pharmacy and that every patient deserves to receive a drug that could save their life if it's already at their pharmacy. And so um, through Every Cure, um, we're taking uh, the approach of really trying to address these systemic problems. So first is building that database. Like you said, it's complicated and it's hard and will require a lot of people. And we're already building out that team, but it's not an impossible feat. Uh, You know, in many ways, the algorithms that predict what video you're going to want to look at next on Instagram are the exact same algorithms that will predict which drug might be utilized in a new disease area. And even better than an algorithm is that a lot of these discoveries have already been made. Um, so I mentioned the discovery um, that led to, to us saving my life, but we've actually discovered nine more drugs for diseases that they were not intended for, one of which is a drug for cancer, uh, angiosarcoma, where a study had been done three years before, back in 2013, it was in PubMed suggesting that a particular drug would be useful for angiosarcoma. But that paper you know, was buried in, in PubMed for three years and no one did anything with it until that patient came to our center and we, we treated him with a drug based on that Um based on that paper, and he's now been alive for over six years. Wow. And that drug and drugs in its class are undergoing clinical trials for angiosarcoma. And the drug's so, name is? Sure. It's pembrolizumab um, or Keytruda. There was a paper in 2013 suggesting that PD-1 and PD-L1 um, may be important in angiosarcoma. And this patient um, was given a three- to six-month prognosis because he had metastatic angiosarcoma and all we did was look at PubMed. We, we, I searched on a simple database um, and found that, that there was data from 2013, three years earlier, and we did a, an experiment on his sample, on his tumor, and it confirmed what the paper said from 2013. And he's been alive and well ever since 2016. Well, 
You know, Dr. Fagenbaum, we've been very interested in what we have referred to as Coley's toxin. One of the first immunotherapies Dr. William Coley developed around the turn of the, the 19th century. Was it the 19th century? No. Turn of the 20th. Turn, around the turn of the 20th century. And he was injecting basically bacterial toxins into sure, sarcoma yeah. patients. and. Wow. To he, to activate the immune system and, against the yes, cancer. He had an astonishing cure record. And then along came radiation and radium, and all of a sudden, nobody was interested in Coley's toxin anymore. Nobody was interested in Im- immunotherapy. And, of course, the side effects were significant. Well, people developed yes. a fever, and uh, they got sick, but they were, in some cases, cured. And mm-hmm. we still don't have a cure for sarcoma. Although, as you've just pointed out, the drug that you found has been very effective for, for this particular patient. But, but it gets to the whole notion that we don't have a system, which drives me crazy. <laughs> I mean, here there are literally dozens, hundreds of medications that might be beneficial. And yet there's no system in this country. There's no system that we're aware of abroad where we can break down the silos and get different doctors with different specialties interacting to say, hey, this old drug, you know, it might work for fill in the blank, mm-hmm. depression, cancer. I mean, there are so many needs that we have. I guess the, the, the real question for you right now is what do we need to do? in order to be able to advance this process? Because it seems like a no-brainer. There are so many drugs out there. What can we do? And we have just less than a minute to get a a quick introduction to the possibilities. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So we need to build this central database that's constantly searching for new drug disease combinations based off all of the new information being generated. So that's number one. Then we need to apply an algorithm to it to prioritize the most promising opportunities and work with government and philanthropic organizations and the general public to raise money to actually do the clinical trials because we recognize that the the business case isn't there for um, drug companies. And so we as a society need to say, well, we're going to take it into our own hands, which is what we've done for Castleman's and angiosarcoma and COVID. Um, But it's to raise the money to actually do the trial ourselves. And that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do through every cure. You're listening to Dr. David Fagenbaum, Assistant Professor of Medicine in Translational Medicine and Human Genetics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. His book is Chasing My Cure. After the break, we'll find out about drugs being used off-label. Some estimates suggest that up to 30% of drugs are being used off-label. Without research, we won't know how to use these drugs effectively. Dr. Fagenbaum's group is looking at nine specific compounds. What are they? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. 
Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. There are both benefits and risks associated with repurposing old drugs. How can we learn to harness the possibilities these medications present without causing undue harm? Our guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Founding Director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fagenbaum is the co-founder of the nonprofit Every Cure and author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Dr. Fagenbaum, as excited as we are about teaching old drugs new tricks, there have been abuses. And the one that comes to my mind is a brand name drug called Neurontin, Gabapentin. And the drug company, at the time I think it was Park Davis, later acquired by Pfizer, was promoting this drug, which was an epilepsy medication, for a number of what we now refer to as off-label uses. Maybe we should stop right there and talk about what off-label means, because it's a weird terminology. Sure. It's it's really important to get all this terminology right. I totally agree. So off-label means that the drug was prescribed for a disease other than the diseases that the FDA put on the label. So serolimus, the label is kidney transplant rejection, and we use it off-label for Castleman disease. So off-label means it's not on the label. And and the last thing I'll mention with that is that approximately 30% of all prescriptions written in the United States today are for off-label uses. And one example that people might be real familiar with is, uh, for example, lorazepam, Ativan which is an anti-anxiety agent. That's what it's prescribed, uh, indicated for. That's on the label. But doctors sometimes prescribe it to people who are having trouble sleeping. So that would be an Mm -hmm. off-label use. Exactly. And for nausea as well. Exactly. Joe, you were were in the midst of of talking about off-label drugs when I interrupted. Can you pick up the thread? I mean, the point is that A third, roughly 30% of medications are being prescribed for off-label purposes. And I think everybody is all excited about that. Isn't it wonderful? Except in the case of Neurontin, the company paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines because they were promoting the drug. 
for these indications that the Food and Drug Administration had not approved and the company had never tested. And so one of the lacking, one of the holes is that we don't know about the dose when you mm-hmm. apply this old drug for a new use. We don't know about the potential side effects. We don't know a lot of information about how to use that drug effectively. And, you know, what comes to my mind is ketamine. I mean, I I mm-hmm. love ketamine. I think ketamine is a fantastic medication. My professor of pharmacology, my mentor at the University of Michigan, did the first clinical trial on ketamine as an anesthetic. Wow. And Dr. Ed Domino wrote it up and, and said, hey, this is a dissociative anesthetic. And uh, it's it's different and it's cool and um, it, just be aware of what the potential problems are. Well, now there are dozens of ketamine clinics all across the country mm. where people are injecting intravenous ketamine for depression, even though it's never been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of depression. So there are pluses and minuses, but there's a whole lack of information about, well, are there any toxicities associated with that? What about the clinics that are now sending people oral ketamine, used to be known as Special K in clubs? What are the pros? What are the cons? How do we do this research around off-label drugs so that we can find out the benefits and the risks? Yeah, I think you're asking all the right questions. And, and this, again, sort of gets back to, to why we wanted to create this organization, because no one is doing the work to figure out all uses for all drugs or figuring out what happens when people use the drugs in new ways. Because like you said, a lot of times repurposing or off repurposing, of course, is another term for this sort of concept of using a drug for a different purpose than essential intent. But when drugs are used off-label, there is no process. The FDA does not have any... Um, uh, effort or, or, or personnel focused on looking at efficacy of drugs once they're approved. There is, a, there is a division that looks at safety. So if drugs are causing a lot of safety problems in new disease areas, other than what they're approved for, the FDA will, will look into that. But there's certainly not a proactive effort around uh, efficacy. So I think it's critical that we leverage the data that exists right now. So there are companies that have medical record data and insurance data where you can actually see what are these drugs being prescribed for and how do those patients actually do. Um, And so through every cure, we'll be using that as one of our primary data sources to see what are things that are being tried out there, but there just isn't sufficient clinical trial data. So some people get it, some people don't get it, some people get the right dose, some people get the wrong dose. Can we figure things out about those opportunities and then actually do a rigorous clinical trial to really prove that the thing works or doesn't work and to really determine whether there are major side effects or not? So I think it really needs to get to a place where when drugs are used off-label, that there is a team which we're building to constantly look for signals within this off-label use and and the ones that look promising to actually do a clinical trial to prove whether they, they truly work or don't. Now, Dr. Fakenbaum, you told us earlier in the show that your organization, Every Cure, has come up with nine drugs that could be useful, that could be repurposed. And we talked a little bit about pembrolizumab for angiosarcoma. What are the other eight? Sure. So it's actually nine drugs that we discovered even before we created Every Cure, just through my center here at UPenn. Um, So they're all focused in this inflammatory uh, disorder world. So um, 
The additional ones are a drug called thalidomide, which of course um, you, you guys know that the backstory on and, and many will that it had a horrible history, but um, has turned out to be effective for multiple myeloma. So we've done a trial of that drug in Castleman disease in combination with uh, cytoxan and also um, prednisone. Um, so those uh, those drugs were combined in a study that we did with colleagues um, to demonstrate the effectiveness of that combination in Castleman's. Again, none of these things were approved for Castleman's. And by um, the way, um, my dear friend Tom Ferguson received thalidomide at University of Arkansas Medical Center for multiple myeloma. That was before, you know, the son of thalidomide came along, which is Revlimid. And so, yes, yes, he got a repurposed drug, thalidomide, one of the most horrific drugs that was ever Mm -hmm. developed because of the birth defects that were associated with it. But it has been reborn as a as a really important new therapeutic agent. And there now there are uh, other versions of thalidomide. So that's really interesting news. What are some of the others that you're looking at? Sure. So uh, n- another one is a drug called bortezomib, uh, again, made for multiple myeloma, where we, um, again, studied that with colleagues in a clinical trial and demonstrated the role that it can play in Castleman disease. Another one is rituximab, one of the drugs that's probably been repurposed the most across all of medicine. Rituximab kills all of your B cells. And so that's really helpful if you have a B cell lymphoma or if you have an autoimmune disease, you can wipe them out with this drug. We've been able to perform a rigorous study of, of rituximab in Castleman disease to push that forward. Um, we also have um, pushed forward understanding around a drug uh, that focuses on the MAP kinase pathway. So we basically did some genetic sequencing in our lab and identified mutations associated with MAP kinase So discovered that as a potential um, treatment approach for Castleman disease. And then the last one uh, is vascular endothelial growth factor, understanding that VEGF um, appears to be playing an important role in calcium disease and identifying that a drug called bevacizumab should be in the pipeline. And so in total, it's nine drugs in addition to the ones I mentioned, serolimus, and then also uh, pembrolizumab, plus these additional ones that we've identified new uses for them. And in some of these cases, we've already done clinical trials to prove that they actually work. And in other ones, we haven't done the trials yet, but they're in the pipeline. And so what we're excited about with every cure, because all this was done through my center at Penn, is to basically say that's when you just look at a few diseases, Castleman's and angiosarcoma and hyperinflammatory diseases. But what about if you open the lens and you just say, what are all the opportunities out there across drugs, across diseases? And then let's pick out the most promising ones and let's prove that they actually work in a way that's completely independent of the pharmaceutical industry, that we can pick out the promising drugs, fund these trials, and really, uh, you know, when I think about the people's pharmacy, that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the pharmacy for the people, regardless of what what sort of uh, interests maybe have blocked us. Amen, brother. <laughs> you, we couldn't have said it better ourselves. You know, there are so many opportunities. I mean, let me just give you one that fascinates me. We heard from some very distinguished fi- psychiatrists at Harvard that phenofibrate. I mean, here is a drug that's been around for decades to treat cholesterol, high levels of triglycerides. And they say, you know, there's some interesting data to suggest that phenofibrate may be good for the brain, hard to treat depression, and maybe even Parkinson's disease. Wow, wouldn't that be a kick? So here's this old drug that's cheap as dirt, phenofibrate, 
F-E-N-O-F-I-B-R-A-T-E, that might have an interesting use. Then here's a mundane use. We've got minoxidil, right? I mean, minoxidil has been around for a long time. It's now sold over the counter as Rogaine to grow hair. Mm -hmm. Well, there's now some research to suggest that low-dose minoxidil might be beneficial for hair loss. As pills, very low-dose. It's a toxic drug, but low-dose might be safe combined with a diuretic that's been around forever called spironolactone for both male and and female pattern baldness. But Terry, there's another low-dose drug. As we talk about dosing, that does have a big impact on Mm -hmm. what a drug is going to do in your body. And we've been hearing some very interesting uh, reports on low-dose naltrexone. Now, at regular doses, naltrexone is approved for reversing opioid... uh, Oh, it is approved for alcohol abuse disorder, mm-hmm. and it's also approved for reversing um, opioid problems. But and, and at I- low doses, people are using it for a lot of different things, and we don't know how much of that is supported by research. And some of those conditions are what we call autoimmune conditions, yeah. which are sort of a little along the lines of what you've had to face and some of the patients that you've worked with. And so the idea is that maybe low-dose naltrexone can calm down the overactive mm-hmm. immune system, but we need far better research. So I guess the real, the real issue is how do we jumpstart every cure? How do we get big money, not just philanthropy like the Gates Foundation, but, you know, the government and other countries to start getting excited because, as you can tell, we're – really fired up about repurposing old drugs, teaching old drugs new tricks. How can we help make this a possible future? Well, thanks so much for, for saying that. And I mean, we, I don't think we could be more aligned on anything in the world than, than, than three of us are aligned on this. Um, I think that, you know, what's exciting is we've already begun to build the team and we've already begun to build the data engine. And I think building out this data engine and, and proving that, Hey, we can identify nine repurposed drugs for a couple of diseases, but we can actually, and we've already started expanding the scope. The first 147 diseases that we've looked at, we found 106 promising repurposing opportunities. Now, being promising doesn't mean that it's going to be effective, but the good news is, is that we can continue to sort and filter down on that list to find the most promising ones to take forward to clinical trials. And we're estimating that it's going to cost between one and five million dollars per clinical trial. And so, these are numbers that are about 1% of the cost of doing developing a new drug from scratch. So, um, you know, what I'm excited about is building out this effort through grassroots fundraising. Anyone listening to this who wants to be a part of this can donate at everycure.org slash donate so that we can build out the engine, identify the promising opportunities, do the clinical trial, and just start changing practice. I think when you start doing that, that's when hopefully you get the attention of the federal government and and organizations who really want to be a part of this. And the second thing I'll say is that I would love to work with you all and and think through all of the guests that you've had over the years, all of the transcripts that you have that talk about drugs that can be utilized in new ways. That information should be in our data engine. I mean, it should, I mean, the drugs you just mentioned should be in that list. So, um, so I hope we can, we can work on that offline, getting, getting these links that are in your brains and in your transcripts of all your shows into our data engine. Absolutely. And the other thing that's fascinating, you said one to $3 million to do a clinical trial. One to five. One to, one to five. five. 
But if, you know, if we were to ask a drug company, what will it cost you to develop a new drug for a new condition or, or an old condition for that matter? They'll say, oh, 500 million, a billion, a billion, two billion. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. The idea that you could do this kind of research for one to five million dollars is nothing short of unbelievable. I mean, that is the best deal in town. And remember, again, these drugs are available. They're affordable. And, and for... we have some indication of safety. Exactly. exactly. I, I think, you know, that there should be countries all around the world lining up to participate in this because they're much more concerned about, you know, cost-effective treatments. I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, the reason that the cost is so much less is that you can rely on the previous data from the safety data that was done, the toxicology data. You can, uh, you don't have to worry about manufacturing. You know, when you develop a new drug, you have to figure out the manufacturing. How do you make this drug? How do you mass produce it? That's all figured out. You have to do all the safety. You have to do work in non-human primates to prove that this, you know, before you can give it to humans, all that's done. Um, and so you've done all that hard work. You can lean on all of that previous experience, and all you have to do is prove that the drug actually works in the new indication. And of course, if the drug barely works, then you're going to need to do a huge clinical trial to prove that it works. And yes, that will cost more than $5 million. But what we want to do is go after the drugs that definitely work and that are really going to have a meaningful impact on human lives. And those sorts of trials, you don't need to do huge, you don't need to have huge numbers of patients in the trial if the drug clearly works. Dr. Fagenbaum, there are so many drugs that are used off-label, and we, we're sort of shooting blind. We, we don't actually have very good data, but I suspect that there are literally thousands of doctors prescribing beta blockers, drugs that have been around for decades, like propranolol, atenolol, mm -hmm. and metoprolol for performance anxiety or, or what's often referred to as stage fright. Mm -hmm. And they, they prescribe them sometimes for somebody who has to give a speech or for a musician or for an actor. And I think to myself, well, yeah, that's interesting. They've been doing this for a long time, but how good is the data? What's the right dose? I mean, that's just one example of probably hundreds of drugs that are used off label and and doctors don't have good data. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a real big challenge, and I think that we need to both leverage the data that are out there, so in medical records and in insurance company databases, to get a sense for what is typically prescribed, and then to try to get a sense for which approaches work and what, what's the right dose. But you're right, a drug like propanolol has been around forever and is generic. There's no financial incentive for anyone to try to figure that out, which means, therefore, it's hard to get the money to, to do those sorts of studies. But that's the kind of thing we want to do with every cure, although um, we'll likely focus on, um, on deadly uh, and, and life-threatening conditions early on. But that's the kind of question that we want to answer for the people, um, even if there's not necessarily uh, an entity that's going to benefit from that. What surprises me is that the Food and Drug Administration doesn't seem to know what to do about off-label uses. Well, actually, I think they don't want to do anything about off-label uses. They're pretty clear that they don't want to regulate the practice of medicine, and that's how they classify off-label use. 
Right. And so they say, eh, you know, that's not our responsibility. That's not our job. You know, once we approve a drug, as they did in the case of thalidomide for leprosy. Actually, mm-hmm. Oh, yes, they did for leprosy. It, it, it was, you know, there might have been two dozen people in the United States who had the kind of leprosy that the FDA approved thalidomide for, but within a relatively short period of time, a few years, probably. doctors were prescribing huge quantities of thalamid, the brand name for mm-hmm. uh, thalidomide, to treat multiple myeloma. The company was making a ton of money for this off-label use. So I guess uh, you know the the doesn't the FDA need to kind of rethink its role and responsibility when it comes to repurposing old drugs? I do think so. I, I think that. Um, the FDA, I think for very good reason, regulates uh, whether a company can market a drug in a new way. So the company that made thalidomide and makes thalidomide, um, if they told doctors, you should try this for your myeloma patients, that would be illegal and the FDA would would give them a massive fine. And I get that because that's really, really important. On the other hand, I do think that because there's this regulation against drug companies talking about their drugs being used in different ways that are off the label, that I think discourages investigation into trying to figure out, you know, how else could this be used? Because unless they actually do all of the steps to get that drug approved for the new use, which can be very expensive, then there's no middle ground. It's either it's either a drug company does all the work to get it approved for myeloma, which they eventually did, or they don't do any work um, and then they can't talk about it at all. And I wish that there was a middle ground where um, the FDA could say this drug was already approved for one thing. And in the same way that we had an emergency use authorization for drugs with COVID, there could be almost an equivalent of that, which is that we haven't given it a full approval. Um, More work is needed. But based on the data that we see, it looks really compelling. And frankly, anyone who has multiple myeloma or Castleman disease, it's an emergency just like COVID was um, for all of us. And there's a lot of drugs out or a lot of diseases out there where we feel like there's the same urgency of COVID. And so I wish there was a middle ground. And, and what exists right now is really that organizations will put together guidelines that may say something like thalidomide can be used third line for Castleman's, which is what we did. So it's not approved for Castleman's, but it's in the guidelines. And that's sort of a middle ground between, you know, no approval and, and approval. Dr. David Fagenbaum, thank you so much for doing this work and for talking about it today on The People's Pharmacy. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope that this is the first of many conversations around every cure so that we can work together on what is really a shared mission that we have. You've been listening to Dr. David Fagenbaum, Assistant Professor of Medicine in Translational Medicine and Human Genetics at the Perelman School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania. He's founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory and associate director for patient impact at the Orphan Disease Center of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fagenbaum is also co-founder and president of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and the nonprofit Every Cure. His book is Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. 
This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,328. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast includes some information about medications that are commonly used off-label. How good are the data? How does the FDA deal with this question, and might it need to rethink its approach? At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week.